Okay, Lee Sales here with Annabelle Crab with a minty. <laughs> we are on a Qantas flight from Canberra to Sydney where we just had the happy coincidence of discovering we're on the same flight. What are we even doing here? Bullied to other people into just swapping um, flight, uh, seats with us. Who knows? That could be a happy ending. That could be some sort of love story or something unfolding. God, down if they get married, seriously. They are. Anyway, we're just all we're doing is recording this as an introduction to the next podcast to show you the sort of horrendous quality audio that we are sparing you because even we have limits. It's the fish that John West reject. <laughs> so we might see you later this week. <laughs> You'll be happy to know we landed safely. <laughs> there, now we're now reinstalled in my capacious office. What did you used to call this thing? It's the priest hole. The priest hole. Yeah, that's right. The priest hole. The priest hole at least has going for it that, that it's reliably quiet. Yeah, it's totally windowless too, so it's um, possible to be unaware of what time of day it is. <laughs> the um, I do have a problem knowing that every single time I come here, I don't know why I have this terrible mental block, but I have to text you every time to say, can you just remind me again what level your office is on? It's, it's really not difficult. Sometimes I wonder how you hold down your job. I don't know. It's because I, I think it's because I let trivial detail, like the location of your office, just fall out the back of my head. Yeah, I, I, just, I hold it's like non-essential detail, inflation rate, all that stuff stays <laughs> at the forefront of my mind because I need There's that. There's something like just so inevitable. Whenever we agree to meet here, I'm just five, four, three, two, <laughs> ding. Remember what level you're on again? Uh, can I just get a couple of clangs straight out of the way? <laughs> yeah, okay, go on. I interviewed Bill Nye earlier. Yeah, clang. Oh, he was lovely. Um, and he basically says he likes nothing better than when he travels around the world to just skulk around finding independent bookstores and having lots of coffee and whatnot. And I just thought, marry me. That's exactly what I like doing as well. <laughs> so he was awesome and super charming. And this is this would be a real clang, except that you're also getting to meet the person, so I can't make you envious. I interviewed Armando Iannucci, who is the creator and writer of Veep. Ha <laughs> reverse clang. <laughs> I still have mine coming up. Yes. Okay, so... Um, See, one of my problems with interviewing Armando Iannucci is that is that sort of options paralysis of just absolute ask kissing, you know, where I just like, yeah. oh, I don't know where to start with everything that I love about you. I mean, well, must funny, be tedious for him. Funny you should raise that because my new best friend Bill Nye brought mm. this up. And <laughs> this is just going to go on indefinitely, isn't it? And I, because I asked him, when you're really famous, can you still get dazzled by other famous people? Right. And he said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, you can. He said, I got completely flummoxed by David Bowie. Who oh, he well, said, yeah, that's <laughs> high flummox rate. That's yeah. like, this is the level we're that's talking about. Hyper-flummoxian. Right? Who would flummox David Bowie, though? <laughs> the Queen? God. No, there'd be, it'd be someone really bizarre, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, not many people now would flummox him, given that he's no longer with us. True, but, um, yeah, David Bowie's like, that's peak celebrity. Mm. The only person for mine that if I bumped into that I would feel equally as freaked out as if I saw David Bowie would be Paul McCartney. I would, really? Oh, God, yes. A beetle. I'd just be, like, yeah, beside myself. I don't know. Some of his misadventures in life make me feel like possibly. Are you talking be... about the Wings albums? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you talking about Band on the Run? Because I think that was a completely fine album. Um, the, uh, yeah, so Bill Nye, in, starring in a play on Broadway in his dressing room, it's packed with people. Who's come by to congratulate him? David Bowie. And he, so he said he's not realised Bowie's in the room and then he just looks next to him and it's David Bowie. Um, and so he said he just went into a complete 
Blah, you're so awesome and you just you, my youth and just gave the whole like fan. imagine and you'd be it would be like one of those things where you die and like you rise above the operating table and you can see your body underneath it, it was you. and he, be said, like that, yeah. he said he could just see David Bowie's face oh, no. glaze oh, over oh. and then and he said because he said you know David Bowie just wanted to have a chat and just wanted to talk about play and they would liked it and stuff and then he said mercifully he got to meet David Bowie on another occasion and then he was just able to talk to him like a normal human being mm. but you can see how like if you just happen to be sitting here and you look to your left and it was David Bowie you can see how you need the time to prepare so you can be so you've got that with Armando because you know you're meeting him so you don't have to blabber like an idiot you can just be I just say Lee didn't think much of you mate <laughs> how'd that go yeah um, what is that great what, story I, I love this story but it's a terrible problem for me that I can never remember who the musician was and I think it was like someone like Yehudi Menuhin or somebody like some incredibly brilliant um conductor or like violinist or something anyway um who told this story once that i heard um about meeting rupert murdoch mm. and apparently murdoch was this huge fan of this um person and uh when he met murdoch um rupert said oh oh it's such an honor to meet you you know i'm a huge fan and um, i will always remember the time when as a young boy I was taken by my father to see you perform and it was just incredibly um, uh, engaging and I'm uh, full of admiration for you. At which point the musician has responded, what? You came to see me as a boy? You mean I had a chance to strangle you back then and oh. I didn't take it? <laughs> oh, diabolical. Yeah. Oh. Pretty good. Wow. Mm. Um, so what are you going to focus on with Armando. you got an hour or something, I guess. This is an event. Yeah. Is it already sold out? Because there's no problem. Probably. Uh, no I don't know. It's the truth. Okay. Well, Annabelle Crabb's doing something at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne in May, early yes. May, with Armando Iannucci. So just Google that and you should be able to find it. Yes. While you're um, at it, have a look at our website, www.chattemlooks3.com. Well, it just like, didn't even feel a thing. If you like us, visit iTunes. Leave a review. Oh, God. <laughs> if you follow us on Twitter, at, at chattemlooks3.com. <laughs> Opens can of Pepsi, hands it to police officer. <laughs> Pepsi matters. Um, oh, what a train crash that was. Yeah. Um, um, well, you, you know, I, I, here's the thing. See, I love the thick of it so much that I could easily just talk about um, mm. that to him indefinitely. But then um, also Veep is just my scratching obsession. So... I'm going to get some more of that to watch. Yeah, I know. Well, one of the things that I first did when the Wheeler Centre said, oh, can you come and do this thing? And, of course, I broke every finger that I possess in my speed in responding yes. I said, uh, in an example of just shocking shamelessness, I'll probably need the new season of Veep uh, just to prepare. <laughs> Can you sort that out for me? And, and I think my friendly sales would need one as well, so I can just bounce some questions off her. Yeah. Uh, so look, I'm, I'm really hoping that some little birdie will deliver me a bootleg set of that uh, oh. new series, so that I can just well, so that I can make my friends' lives unbearable by announcing that I've watched it. Now, speaking of things that we love, yes. the Americans' latest season has started in the US, but it's not on TV in Australia until... Well, it's months away, right? Yeah, Another month, yeah. I saw you tweet about that the other day. Yeah, I was hoping Foxtel would respond. I was like, Foxtel, where is it? Um, did, did you see the piece in the New Yorker, um, which was ways oh, TV critics have tried to get me to watch the Americans? That just made me laugh so much. <laughs> Thank you to whichever... I think it was a... Um, podcast tragic who alerted us Margot to Sabo yes was, yeah. oh was it yeah, yeah it was Margot. Thanks, Margot. Thanks, Margot. but I just oh my god it was just one of those beautifully written pieces that just 
for a while teeters between <laughs> satire and um, and reality, and then just gloriously takes flight. It's just so great. So it's things like, you know, it was pretty much basically the history of our relationship of me telling you and begging you to watch The Americans and you holding out. Um, and so it would be things like, you know, um, so-and-so from the New York Times flew a drone into my backyard bearing a copy of The Americans, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it was extremely funny. And Sky writing. Oh, my God. So funny. Um, um, I've been binging a little bit today on funny things online. I think it's just like the first day in a while where I haven't been fully made up tramping around Parliament House, you know, doing pieces to camera and things. Mm. So I am uh, quite, I have quite enjoyed wasting a tiny bit of time today reading funny things. And the funniest, oh, my God, in the top one of funny things <laughs> that I've read last week is that fabulous thing in the monthly, um, which our mutual friend Miranda Murphy alerted me to. Oh, my gosh. It's um, by Hugh Robertson, and it's, um, it's entitled... AFL 2017, in names only. The only player analysis you'll need this footy season. And this spectacular example of humanity has gone through the entire 2017 field of players, AFL players, and gathered them into name types. It's just the most spectacular example of, it, of time-wasting that has just produced something so fabulous. Look, Murph put me on that email chain as well, oh. and it was one of those things I started reading it, I was tittering, then I started laughing. By the end, I was guffawing with tears running down my it cheek. it starts with, you know, names suitable for minor characters in a Charles Dickens novel. <laughs> Darcy Parrish, Brandon Parfitt, Harry, per Harry Perryman, Harrison Wig, Tom Ruggles, and then there's people with K's in their names. Sure, sure, you know, people with double barrels, you know, surnames and so on. There's <laughs> something called the annual Jared census, all the different spellings of Jared and how many of them there are, which is absolutely striking. Um, and then going through the Bradens, the Bradons, the Jadens, the Haydens, the Cadens, and the Aidens. The rain in Spain falls mainly on the Dane, Dane Zane, Blaine, Kane, Kane, Wayne, Jermaine. <laughs> and then there's one, oh, there's desperately immature giggle, Mason Cox, Tyson Goldsack, Steel Sidebottom, Aaron Mullet. I quite liked Imperatives. David Swallow, Billy Stretch, Brad Crouch, Tom Lynch, <laughs> Dean Gore. <laughs> and by the time it gets to... Oh, then what about names suitable for the protagonist of a Banjo Patterson Bush ballad? <laughs> Darcy Tucker. Billy Frampton. Jack Scrimshaw. <laughs> Fletcher Roberts. Oh, this was my favourite. Oh. Names suitable for a new housing development in Sydney's northwest. Blake Akers, <laughs> Levi Greenwood, Bradley Hill, Bailey Dale. Fergus Green. And also, uh, the, the, by this time I was just actively hooting. <laughs> oh, yeah, six degrees of Dawson Simpson. Jordan Dawson. Liam Dawson. Zach Dawson. <laughs> Dawson Simpson. Cade Simpson. Sam Simpson. What is just, I don't know, people's brains. <laughs> oh, wait, sorry, we're just going to read yeah, you the whole thing. Basically, <laughs> don't bother subscribing to the monthly. We'll just read it out for you. Hey, we should do that as a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> May the force be with you, Wiley Buzzer, <laughs> Griffin Logue, <clears throat> Ivan Soldo. You can just see, like, in the cantina, Ivan Soldo, Taria Bayok, Cameron Zuhar, Maverick Weller. Maverick Weller. Sorry, guys. Oh, God. And the Orazio Fantasia <laughs> Perpetual Trophy for Best New Name, Quinton Narkel. So the reason this is funny is that there'll be like 
people I imagine listening to this are just like, yes, you have heard of all of those people. But because you, who have a like starting basis of <laughs> AFL knowledge that's about, let's say, zero, all of these things are really funny. <laughs> have you heard of these? No. <laughs> Oh god, uh, that was just yeah. Sometimes Thank you, Monthly. an idiot just takes an idea and runs oh, with it, so and it just I haven't got my makeup on yet today. So well, that was just god, so awesome. And also loved the thing it. that I also, I mean, look, that was just funny in and of itself. But can you imagine the fun that there must have been oh. and the laughs pulling it together? It just can you imagine been. the ideas that this guy rejected? Imagine how many false start there. And it says um, Hugh Robertson, who's the writer who I'd never heard of actually. Sorry Hugh if you're like a Pulitzer Prize winner or something. Hugh Robertson runs a record store, writes a lot and thinks about the Sydney Swans too much. Great bio. Well done Hugh. <laughs> well Top done work. Hugh. You should be one of um, our friends. It's like, um, you know, sometimes it's just sort of one funny idea that can just work so beautifully. I'm slightly reminded, although um, it's a totally different kettle of fish, of that great um, piece that Peter Martin from Fairfax wrote a little while ago where he just said, he pointed out that there were more men called Peter who ran ASX 200 companies than women. Oh. <laughs> and it was just a really great piece of name wrangling that just meant something so much. Yeah, and way to um, use it to illustrate yeah. um, something. Hey, before we get off um, Amando Iannucci entirely as yeah. well, um, did you see the thing just while you've been going through your funnies where someone's taken actual real-life Trump footage of that non-signing of that executive order and oh. they've used it as the closing credits to Veep? Oh, my God. It, I've watched it several times. How it's good just, is it? It's so funny. And that is a great tribute to Iannucci's genius. Are you listening, Armando? <laughs> I love you more than she does. <laughs> um, there is a square inch of this man's ass that remains unkissed. <laughs> that I'm the woman so. for the job. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, the fact that even the theme music of Veep carries this quite potent message oh, you know it's absolutely. just it's very elegant it's 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 a great idea um we'll include a link to this it's yeah, not whoever, very long but i mean it genius. just also gives you this light varnish over the extreme absurdity of the situation where trump passes into this <laughs> office and just <laughs> ostensibly to sign this executive order just becomes totally befuddled and then barges out again without having done what it was. And then Mike Pence I love sort of... <laughs> expression on his face. It's just total veep. Could you oh. imagine the... Um, oh, I can't even imagine the inside of that White House at the moment. I mean, the memoirs are just going to be priceless. Right. But yeah. One of the things Armando Iannucci said in our interview, Clang, was um, oh, that when he went to... I asked how they researched the swearing um, for those shows because the swearing <laughs> is one of the most enjoyable things about it. It's gold standard swearing. Oh, just the quality yeah. of it. Um, and he said in both locations he would, because, um, you know, people in Britain swear differently sure. to people in the United States. Sure. People in the Pentagon swear differently to people in the State Department. Oh, shit, yeah. yeah. So, he'd, <laughs> so he'd do all of the research. But he said when he went up to the White House to do some research, Reggie Love, who used to be yeah. Obama's point body man, man. Body man um, showed him around. There's a great name anyway. I mean, Reggie, Reggie Love. Love. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and when he walked him through the White House, he said, Everything he said, he'd be like, this is what was uh, Josh Lyman's office. This is where CJ Craig used to be. Mm. Um, and I wonder when she went, mate, you know that you actually now are in the White House. You are the real thing. That was like a made-up TV show. That's terrifying. Um, and he was using it as an example to show how obsessed um, America is and Washington is with Hollywood yeah. versus what they're like in Britain. No one would walk you through and say, 
Oh, this is Malcolm Tucker's old office. <laughs> this is, I know, right? Yeah. This is what, I mean, I, I, I mention this to everybody I know about once a month, so please bear with me while I mention it again. Um, that great old column of Maureen Dowd's where she wrote during the 2008 um, presidential campaign, she um, wrote this column about how um, one of Obama's real problems um, was that he did not have a friendly Democrat former um, pre president to give him advice because obviously Clinton wasn't helping him. Right. Um, Carter wasn't really appropriate. Um, in and she said, look, he just needs somebody who has got the runs on the board to sit him down and talk him through some basics. And so she wrote to Aaron Sorkin and asked him to write a scene. She, was, she used to go out with Aaron Sorkin. I know! Yeah. Which makes it even more great! Yeah. But in, she asked him to write a scene in which um, uh, Obama goes and consults um, Jed Bartlett and Sorkin does it, and it's the greatest column. And <laughs> also a brilliant piece of work for Maureen because she's basically written 30 words up the top and then got Aaron Sorkin, her ex-boyfriend, <laughs> to write the rest of the column. But it's hysterical. It's I'll, so good. Too. I read it at the time. I'll have to go back out and I'll yeah. drag it out and have a look and see. Yep, I've got it on rinse and repeat in my house. I love that column. Um, so did you see anything else particularly funny today? I mean, it's hard uh, to top that AFL thing. That was uh, so yeah. funny. Look, the other, the other Trump, I mean, look, there's a million, gajillion, gabillion Trump things and um, one of the weirdest things is that, you know, um, a lot of these memes would just be like once in a lifetime funny, but there's, there's three <laughs> so new many. ones every day. So, um, But I quite like that one that somebody's done called Sassy Trump, oh, where they've yeah. taken those um, speeches and stuff and the elaborate hand gestures <laughs> that Trump makes. And all they do is just revoice what he's saying with a really camp, um, voice, which just yeah. lends an entirely different air to the whole circumstance. I love um, watching those. They're very funny. Look, there's just so much to do. I mean, again, I just I hate to bring up Armando again, but we also <laughs> talked about how when you have something that's so, it's like satirising itself because yeah. it's so weird, what do you do when you write satire? Yeah. And he was saying they have found that invariably they write something and about two or three weeks later it actually yeah. just happens. Yeah. And so we've got to talk about... Sometimes happens in Australia. Well, we got to talking about um, continuity and change yeah. and um, he said he couldn't believe when he heard Malcolm Jumble say yeah. there's continuity and there's change because he said that they had gone, sat down and thought, what is the most inane, meaningless thing that we could come up with? <laughs> and that was what they came up with. Um, the other one that had particularly tickled his fancy was when Bill Shorten on Sky News was asked if he agreed with Julia Gillard oh. and he said, I don't know what she said, but I know I agree I, with it. I agree with it 100%. Yes. I would have been a goodie. Um, now, just because you may not be the only person that's allowed to have plans on this show, um, I um, interviewed a whole lot of the chefs that were here for the World's 50 Best Restaurants Awards. Yes. Um, that was uh, won by uh, well, the top restaurant in the world, as announced in Melbourne the other day, um, is a place called Eleven Madison Park. Uh -huh. um, and I interviewed both the chef and the restaurateur. Is that, that in New York? Clang! New York or where? Yes, it's in New York. Right. Yeah. Oh, cool. um, what but, sort of food is it? Um, imaginative. They mm. do lots of things with pig's blood as we used to. But anyway, it, it's 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 a place that this that this pair, um, uh, Daniel Hume and Will Gadara, um, set up. They used to work at this restaurant and they bought it off the owner mm -hmm. and then just sort of revamped it a bit five years later. Oh, hi, we're the best restaurant in the world. Wow. So, yeah. 
And I noticed, um, I was reading something about that this morning, there's two restaurants in Australia that are in the top 50, yeah. right? And they're both in remote locations. Yeah, Attica yeah. and Bray, both uh, in sort of out of Melbourne. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. Have you eaten at either of them? I haven't actually, and right. I never will now that they're, you know, so intensely famous. But yeah, well, exactly. We'll never be yeah. able to get in there, sadly. Hey, can you tell the me... The thing, um, before I finish with this slight clang, um, and, you know... I, a couple of these chefs that I met were just unbelievably extraordinary people and I could probably yabber on for quite some time but won't um, uh, cause you the tedium. Um, these two who run this world's best restaurant were, the thing that I really admired about them was that they were incredibly gracious and very firmly of the view that the most important thing to them and the thing that they loved most was watching people's faces be sort of transformed by joy when they ate something incredible or were surprised by some... <laughs> when, they, yeah, when they were eating the pig's bill. bladder and they realised, oh, it actually oh, doesn't delicious. taste that bad. <laughs> mm. um, and also they were really, really careful to talk about how aware they were that people went to their restaurant as a special occasion, like there are lots of birthdays and things like that. Right. And I really liked the way that they talked about that as their greatest focus because I think when you're an intensely successful chef the temptation would be to think well this is about me and my genius mm. but they were both really careful um, to um, to keep the focus on people who are eating at the restaurant which unlike Hero I mean I dream of sushi no, exactly. Hero dreams of sushi but I should say look um, one of the things that I've really got so just unscratchably addicted to in the last few weeks, and mainly I got onto it because I was preparing for interviewing these chefs, is that a bunch of them, uh, there's this guy Massimo Bottura who runs um, what was until this week the best restaurant in the world. It's been re-ranked down to number two. He's this uh, incredibly OTT genius um, chef. Um, I watched uh, Netflix's series The Chef's Table, which has sort of 40-minute documentaries about all of these um, well-known chefs. Most of them are kind of taken from that 50 best restaurants list. And it goes through um, sort of their life stories and their practices and their, you know, their food and what they do. And it's so beautifully shot. It is, without a doubt, the most beautifully shot food series mm. I've ever seen. Wow. Um, to the extent that even if you've never heard of any of these chefs, Five minutes, five seconds in, you're absolutely gripped because it's wow. so gorgeous and so interesting. And it's also a real lesson in how um, if you take a bit of time and you um, produce and shoot something beautifully, you can actually get more out of people because you get this sense that these chefs who are cooperating, and obviously very few of them are especially patient people, but you can see that they're really responding to the fact that the um, the crew um, and one assumes the interviewer because it's, there aren't um, questions um, incorporated. You're just sort of seeing and hearing. Um, it's a bit like Australian story in that sense. Um, you can see that they trust what's going on and so they are actually letting the crew into quite intimate parts of their lives. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you as well, just while we're talking about the cooking stuff, I read this article um, and it sounded intriguing and I just wondered maybe if you were there, mm. which was somebody asked a really inappropriate question of a panel of a female chef. Oh, they, they, I was there. That yeah. was um, at the Opera House so um, what happened? last Saturday. And so the woman was actually, she's in one of these um, 
programs, the Chef's Table shows um, as well. Her name's Dominique Crenn. She is French-born, um, grew up in Brittany. She was adopted. Um, all of this is in this show. It's so interesting and also um, This is all emotional. in the Chef's Table. Yeah, it is. Episodes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so she was um, adopted with her little brother when she was 18 months old. He was a bit older. And this couple, who went on to be her parents, um, turned up at the orphanage where they were and, and decided to adopt her brother. And then as they were taking him away, um, she ran over and gave him a kiss and they're like, oh, who's that? And the staff are like, oh, that's her, that's, that's your boy's little sister. And they're like, well, we've got to take her too. And they're like, God, it's almost Dickensian, isn't it? Anyway, um, and so she was raised by this couple who were incredibly great parents and um, she um, became a chef and eventually sort of settled in San Francisco where she opened her restaurant, which is called Atelier Crenn. And she's so intense and all of her food is really emotional. It's all about a story. The, when you go to the restaurant, you don't get a, a standard menu. It's actually a poem. She writes a poem and it's got all of these sort of oblique references. It's a bit like a haiku or something where you've got these references to elements and the dishes come out and they represent a, like a stanza of the poem. Oh. It's it's really interesting that her whole approach is, is and we talked about this a lot on stage, she said that her um, the way that she creates a dish is that she starts with an emotion or a memory or a story and then she builds the ingredients around that. Completely different from, like, she was sitting next to Peter Gilmore from Key, who's like, oh, I just had to start with the ingredient. <laughs> but it's so interesting to hear about these different techniques and, and you learn a lot about her. Um, the other thing about her, and I don't know why I mentioned this except that it's one of the really striking things about her, she is intensely beautiful. Like, she's strikingly um, fascinatingly beautiful and um, in the program there's a lot of her like being really intense in the kitchen you see that she's there round the clock pretty much and you don't really see all that much of the rest of her life except you know sometimes in the interview she's in her house with her little dog and you know mm. anyway so when we got to the public Q&A uh, Q part of this discussion um, and there were some other people on the panel like um, Brett Graham the for the Newcastle-born chef who now runs the Ledbury in, in London, uh, mm -hmm. which he set up when he was 26 and he's still only 38. I hate him. Um, <laughs> he's a genius. Anyway, um, so we had a few questions. And then this guy gets up, right? This is in the opera house. There's lots of people there. And he says, he starts off with some weird remark about Malcolm Turnbull and there's never been a more exciting time to be a chef or something. Everyone's like, yeah, right. <laughs> What is it, the thing where people will still think it's funny to say that? There's never Ugh. been a more exciting time. Oh, as the Prime Minister would say, God, get over it. Anyway, um, do you know, I'm interested, Dominic, in, you know, when I, I look along the line of chefs sitting around you and, you know, they all have um, families and wives and whatever, and I want to know, Dominic, you know, who, who looks after you? Who supports you, you know? I, I mean, um, you don't seem to have any family, and I'm just wondering why, you know, having the choices that you've made, why it is that you've made the choice not to take on one of the most important jobs that a woman can do, which is to be a mother. And so there's this whole kind of, the whole opera house just goes a bit like, Ugh, and I'm thinking, oh, what I do here because I'm thinking is that too insulting a question really for this woman to put up with I don't know like she's the she's an incredible professional anyway so I look over at her and she gives me this wink I'm thinking oh you're all right so she says and I'm, I, I pathetically try and reproduce the absolute <laughs> splendor of her response but she said she starts off by saying well 
boy. And I'm like, oh, God, here we go. Because this, yeah, this guy is like Gold. in his 50s, probably oh, older awesome. than her. And he, she says, I don't understand why you make, how do you know? How do you presume to know my family situation? How do you know I'm not a mother? Oh. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, God. And then she says, I have two twin girls, four years old. And everyone's like, whoa, whoa. And then she starts saying, Everybody makes choices in their life. Everybody. Not just men, not just women. And you know what? I really hope that you make a good choice in your life. I hope if you have a family, if you have the children or the wife, I hope you do everything you can to allow her to pursue her dreams. It's not just about your dreams. I hope that's the choice you make, okay? You know, because this is not... A man and woman thing. This is a human thing. Oh, oh like, did the whole okay. just go, yeah! Well, and then she says, and she's like well into it at this stage, and awesome. I am not paying appropriate tribute to the mastery of her response because she was slitting this guy to ribbons like a, like a Christmas turkey, and I'm not <laughs> sure that he was quite aware of the extent of his injuries while this was happening. And then finally she just says, so, you know what? I like you. I like it, so I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask me another question. <laughs> and did he? No. Oh. Well, he, he tried to give it a shot, like, in, oh, in the end. Oh, we just we moved on. But That's just so but was, awesome that she was could respond like that. She was incredible. And the other thing, like, first of all, there was the drama of this. Actually, I've got four-year-old twins. Yeah. <laughs> which... You had you saw nothing of in the TV show, so to that extent, like his assumptions yeah. were um, were kind of sustained by the program that he'd seen. Right. But then again, there's heaps of chefs in that series where you don't see their families. Yeah. The thing is that you just assume if if the woman's family is invisible because she doesn't have one. Yeah. Right. Um, so there was the sort of the penny dropping of that reveal, and then her. Um, muscular follow-up followed by her just direct challenge to him. It was just, yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of a masterclass. And the other thing is that the thing that made you hyper-aware of is, oh, my God, imagine working in this woman's kitchen. And did she deliver <laughs> it with sort of calm precision? She was or? charming. Oh, awesome. So she wasn't angry. She was just... Uh, so interestingly, like it was the talk of the I'm whole sure. place afterwards, Um and I had a bunch of people come up to me, and what was really interesting was the breadth of interpretations of her response. Like, there were people saying, oh, my God, she was so nice to him. Why was she so nice to him? And I was thinking, oh, I think she kind of blew him up, really. But anyway, yeah. she just did it in this... Such a charming way. Quite a charming way. It's incredible, too, how, like, you know... It's one thing if someone asks something stupid and then you eviscerate them in an angry way, mm. but then the ability to like just annihilate somebody in a really calm and still retain some charming yeah. sort of way is amazing. Like I um, am friends with a young woman who's in her early twenties who had stage three breast cancer. She's now been through a treatment and is um, in remission. But when you're that young and you have something like that, you have to go mm. and have all your eggs removed yeah. because you need to be able to maintain some yeah. prospect of having children later. So she had to have IVF, basically, not yeah. to get the eggs implanted, just to get them yeah. taken away and frozen. And so she is this gorgeous-looking, you know, at the time, 22-year-old, and she would have to go, as you do if you have IVF, and go to the office in the morning. Yeah. for I think they do a blood test or something. And... Um, she would be sitting there and they'd be everyone would be waiting for the clinic to open. There'd be, you know, a dozen yeah. women or whatever. And everyone else would be about our age. And yeah. so she really stood out yeah. mostly. Anyway, they were all sitting there in silence one day. And this woman said, what are you doing here? 
And when my friend told me, I thought, I just thought that is so unbelievably rude that you would yeah. ask that in that environment. Yeah. And I was thinking, I would have said, well, if you must know, I've got breast cancer. And you sort of, <laughs> yeah, sort of leapt on her. But my friend just coolly fixed her and said, I'm here for the same reason you are, to get a blood test. <laughs> I just thought that is so much better because she gave that woman nothing. She just gave her absolutely nothing. So I was very proud of her. <laughs> that excellent response. Hey, now Brenda um, told me that this is our 50th episode. Oh, is it? Yeah, I know. And we haven't moved from Luke, the damn office. Luke, the priest hole, not even with a nice <laughs> I know. snack. I know. We'll have to do something good There's for no our hundred. There's no food, sorry. Should yeah, have brought something. Um, and uh, we're a minty. I've got so much left to talk about. Maybe we should see if we can do a second. Well, why don't we call this, um, um, you know, 50th part ooh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the 50th present is another one coming right up. Good plan. Yeah. 50th part ooh. <laughs>